Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here again today. My name is Ashley, and I'm your host. And today we have with us another really wonderful scientist. And for our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your pronouns? So my name is Dr. Cindy Lebrus, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Amazing. Thank you, Cindy. And can you also tell us where you're joining us from today? So I am joining from the beautiful island of Mauritius, where I'm from, uh, born and raised there. And uh, I know me and Ashley are in two different time zones, like I'm in the future, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you have your doctorate, which is incredible. Congratulations. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, your research in order to get your doctorate? I started, um, I think, with my, so I started with my master's first, where I was really interested in looking at, uh, you know, blue carbon habitats. So for the listeners, blue carbon is a carbon that is stored in shallow vegetated coastal ecosystems, which you've probably seen, uh, you know, just walking around uh, the coastal areas such as seagrasses, mangroves, and marshes. So I started looking at them right in my master's, and then for my PhD, I decided to dive deeper into the subject and look at the overall assessment of blue carbon habitats. So there's still uh, a lot of uh, knowledge gaps that remain, for example, in the amount of carbon that is stored in those carbon habitats, blue carbon habitats. And that is partly due to the fact that uh, there's incomplete mapping of their extent of how much, you know, what's the extent uh, of their uh, coverage. So for my research, uh, what I wanted to look at, especially with the increased recognition of blue carbon ecosystems as a natural uh, climate solution. So what I looked at for my dissertation is to for a way to apply a satellite remote sensing together uh, with other modeling, uh, like for example, a numerical uh, model to look at carbon cycling in two specific blue carbon habitats. So I looked at seagrasses and tidal marshes. So basically my first endeavor was to look at how much seagrass had changed over 30 years in terms of extent uh, in a small estuary in uh, Florida called St. Joseph Bay. And this, uh, this research has been published, which I thought this was a really interesting study to look at. We used publicly available Landsat imagery and looked at how much, you know, carbon had changed over 30 years uh, and how much also the carbon had changed. So we looked at extent and we also looked at the carbon itself. And then in a second part of my uh, research, I looked at in tidal marshes, you have this, um, what we call a lateral exchange of carbon between the marsh platform and the estuary that is adjacent to it. 
So I looked at the, the exchange of dissolved organic carbon, which is a very important, which forms a substantial part of the global carbon cycle, but it's often underrepresented because it's so dynamic. The, this exchange is like, um, there's, there's, it's very dynamic. So, and also tidal marshes themselves, they are this like hotspot for DOC cycling. So there's this spatial and temporal heterogeneity of aspect of tidal marshes that makes them difficult to, to usually monitor. So I, again, I use satellite remote sensing uh, combined with a, a, a numerical model to look at DOC fluxes in marshes. So that, I think, in a nutshell, is what I study as part of my PhD. Wow, that is super interesting. I am just amazed by the breadth of what you've covered <laughs> throughout getting your doctorate. And we will definitely include the link to your research in our, in our show notes. So I also want to get a little bit more information from you. I think a lot of us, or at least people at Ocean Bites, we love to write about seagrasses. But I don't think a lot of us have heard about or are familiar with tidal marshes. So when you mention all of the dissolved organic carbon that is fluxing in and out of these tidal marshes, can you explain a little bit more about that? So um, what happens, so when you think of a marsh platform, uh, so tidal first, it, as its name suggests, so that means that tides come in and out. And it floods, you know, the marsh platform, depending on where you are. For example, the system that I studied in North Carolina in the US, it was, uh, it had diurnal tides. So it had um, two high tides and two low tides. So what I looked at was, so when the tide come in and it floods the marsh platform, so you, if you, you've seen a marsh before, you will see like this like thick layer of, um, I guess, marsh um, soil that is exposed at low tide. And that's what the blue carbon is. This, this is like the, the thick layer of, which doesn't sound, doesn't look appealing at first. This is where all of the carbon is like stored over the years. Right? As the marsh platform is flooded by tides, so you have this sort of, like you can think of it as, you know, brewing tea, for example. So uh, when the, everything that's in the marsh soil, in the marsh vegetation, the biomass itself, just like it's being extracted by this water that's been, that, that floods the, the platform. The, the biomass and the, the sediment, they're full of organic carbon. They're really, really rich in organic carbon. And this carbon, is actually, like I said, it's just like brewing tea where everything seeps into that water. And as the water, you know, recedes and goes out again into the ocean as the tide recedes, it takes all of this dissolved organic carbon with it. So there's this like massive export of DOC that's being carried, carried into the ocean. But somehow this is usually underrepresented in the global carbon cycle because it's so difficult to measure it. That's why we're trying to find ways to to actually quantify the, the, this this DOC, this dissolved organic carbon, and you know the, this flux. Incredibly interesting. It's really important that we conserve these ecosystems, based on what you've said so far about these fluxes and how carbon is being cycled through these environments. Exactly, exactly. And some of those marshes are really. You know, there's small ones, but 
they also have um, a really a high export compared to other bigger uh, marshes. So sometimes the small systems are underrepresented along with their carbon content. So it's important to 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 take that into account when um, and including them into the global carbon cycle. So throughout your research, do you have something that was surprising that you found, or maybe you would like to share a fun fact with us? One thing that I found, uh, I will say, I guess, when looking, for example, at um, this, the 30-year uh, change in seagrass extent in this, uh, in centers of Bay in, in Florida. So what was interesting is that, you know, like some part of Florida are really affected uh, by anthropogenic activities in general and we were expecting, or harmful algal blooms in, as well. So we were expecting to see some sort of trend, of decreasing trend. But overall, what we found is that over, over 30 years that the seagrass extent hadn't changed that much. So it was overall, on average, hadn't changed. So it, hadn't, it hadn't increased, hadn't decreased. It's just pretty much stayed on average the same. So I thought that was really interesting, uh, you know, on a global level, uh, looking at the trend, I mean, to see that in an area that is usually affected by so much anthropogenic activities or even usually part of Florida, you always hear about red tides or things like that. If there hasn't been much, it hadn't affected St. Joseph Bay that much. And it may have to do with, you know, its geographical location in the panhandle. So it's located in the Florida panhandle. And it may have to do, you know, with currents there that kind of somehow, you know, prevented it from being affected. Those are among the factors that we investigated that could be responsible for the fact that it didn't change as. Wow, that is actually really surprising. I mean, I think we hear a lot about, you know, how climate change is causing all of these other environmental changes at a rapid pace, but to hear that something hasn't changed, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so you would have, for example, some, you would have, you would see inter-annual variability, you would see some ups and downs, which we investigated, you know, we tried to see was it related to temperature, was it related to, you know, other climate variability, such as, for example, I don't know if the listeners have heard of El Nino or, you know, this, which is a climate variability, but it wasn't affected, it was unrelated, those inter-annual variability wasn't related. So it was very interesting to see you know, that such a system hadn't changed, like the seagrass extent had actually been pretty resilient, if you, you can say. So they've rebounded pretty well. There might be something with hope for the future somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely serves as, you know, a good system to study, to kind of help with other systems, to, you know, to see what happened there that, you know, can be transferred to other systems what we, we, that we can uh, learn from, from this site that could be, you know, applied to other similar estuaries. Yeah, definitely. So for all of our young scientists out there, you have your job, now get to it. So I'm also curious, what have you researched in the past and how did you kind of get to where you are today, you know, having a doctorate and now having another position? I will say when I started, uh, for example, I did my, my bachelor's degree in marine science, 
I was not really studying Bukharan at the time, so I worked for a little bit in Mauritius after finishing my bachelor's and worked at the uh, Mauritius Oceanography Institute. And while I was there, I was doing something completely different. I was investigating the potential of marine sponges in the biopharmaceutical industry. So basically sponges, they produce, uh, you know, they are what we call sessile organisms. That means they're always, you know, uh, on the bottom of the ocean. They can't really move like the fish. So they have to find ways to uh, defend themselves against predators. And what happens is that they, their way to defend themselves against predators is that they produce those uh, um, what we call secondary metabolites, they produce these substances, if you want, that would, you know, scare them away, or sometimes they're sticky, that would kind of stick to the predators. So these substances have value in the pharmaceutical industry. So some of them have antibacterial properties and anti-cancerous properties. And those are not just marine sponges. Uh, there's different organisms as well that's been, uh, that have been investigated for such uh, properties. So I was looking at, um, at that. So I spent a lot of time in the lab where we would go through, you know, a lot of chemical analysis, uh, extraction. So we would process the sponges, freeze dry them, and then again, extract them using different solutions so that we could get the compounds out of them and then separate them uh, using, let's say, chromatography techniques. Following that, I think then I decided to become something completely different from my master's because I got really interested into blue carbon and how, you know, they were kind of overlooked, but now they're really getting the attention they deserve. For my bachelor's, even before getting into marine sponges, I, uh, my thesis, my bachelor's thesis was on biophallic organisms. I was looking at, you know, what kind of surfaces would, uh, they would usually colonize based on different areas around the island here. So now, based on the blue carbon, I guess blue carbon experience that I got through my research, I am now working, um, with a Sylvestrum Climate Associate. So, as, a, uh, as an associate with them, uh, I work on what we call carbon projects. So basically what are carbon projects is, let's say, a blue carbon habitat. So you, you apply greenhouse gas accounting methodologies that are available uh, to drive finance towards activities that would reduce or remove emissions and also improve livelihoods and protect nature. So carbon projects, they can be either restoration or conservation and particularly blue carbon ecosystems and restoration or conservation, they either lead to reduction in GHG emissions or increase the carbon storage. And what happens is that once you have those carbon projects going, they generate what we call carbon credits. So carbon credits are some sort of currency uh, that is certified by certification bodies, which is um, Vera is one of them. It is a currency that kind of represents how much 
an emission reduction. It is it is a, a, an emission. It represents an emission reduction of one metric ton of CO two. So usually, what you have is that carbon credits. They are once they are generated, they are used to compensate for emissions that occur elsewhere. So, for example, companies and individuals they invest in projects around the world in order uh, to balance out kind of their own carbon footprints. And those projects are usually based in developing countries, and uh, they're designed, like I said, to reduce future uh, emissions. But additionally, the, uh, these projects, they, they help the communities there. So they provide additional sustainable uh, development benefits that help improve the quality of life in those project communities. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. It sounds like you've had an incredible amount of experience throughout your life doing science, being involved in these different projects. And especially, I think what <laughs> was most exciting to me is that sponges can be used for medicines. Yes, they, they can. <laughs> they That's definitely incredible. Can. They've been used in the pharmaceutical, I guess, pharmaceutical research for, for a while now. They have like what we call uh, bioactive molecules. This is what they produce. Wow. So maybe sponges are the future of medicine. I don't know. It sounds like there's this incredible amount of information that we have yet to discover. Yes. I mean, definitely a lot of, um, let's say, a lot of the compounds uh, that uh, maybe are kind of being researched in the pharmaceutical industry actually come from the ocean. I'm not sure statistically what percentage that would be. They're definitely omnipresent in the pharmaceutical industry. Wow, yet another reason that we need to protect our oceans, <laughs> as if we needed one more. <laughs> yes, so next time you go out, you know, just snorkeling or diving, definitely look out for, for sponges. Or even, you know, some of them come from seaweed, uh, some of them, I don't know, come from snails, uh, sea slugs. Wow, that is way too cool. So I also want to dig in a little bit more to your current position and talk a little bit more about these carbon projects that you're on. So I think a lot of us are mostly familiar with carbon credits in the form of large corporations purchasing these in order to offset their carbon emissions, like possibly airplane companies. I know I've seen a couple um, flights that are like, oh, this purchase option saves you know 5% CO2 or something like that. Is that some the kind of company that you would um, work with in order to develop carbon projects? Not really. We, uh, I guess those companies, like you said, are the ones that purchase them. So we work with what um, we basically call like the project developers. For example, um, let's say, you know, there's a project developer that would like to restore uh, a certain number of hectares of mangroves in a, in a country. So we would work with the project developers to help them, you know, do all of the scientific and technical background, write up the project description, uh, do all of the calculations so you know how much uh, based on a certain number of hectares of um, of mangroves, how would that how much credits would be generated from that so how much emission reduction would arise from it and how much credit would be generated from that and and then 
uh, when the pro the project goes, you know, like it's a much bigger process. Like I said, you have uh, a, a certification or a body like Vera, so they have certain processes in place that you have to go through before the credits can be issued. So you have uh, uh, some sort of verification that needs to be done. Um, you know, it's a scientific process as well, so everything needs to be justified and verified. You cannot just you know, put something out there without being, uh, without it being vetted. So there's uh, different steps involved before the credits can be issued. I mean, I don't think most of us realize how much goes on behind the scenes of just having these carbon credits because, you know, when we see them in the media or the culture. It's like, oh, you know, there's this much carbon that's being reduced, but I don't think a lot of people know, like, this work is actually happening on the ground. It's happening in local communities and there are people who are actually making sure that the carbon <laughs> credits are what they say they are. Yes, exactly. So uh, a good portion of it, like I said, is, I mean, we, do, we still have to do field work. We have to um, measure, you know, because uh, different areas uh, have different um, storage capacity. So we, we still have to do field work. Uh, you know, measure, take measurements or take samples uh, of the soil to know how much is being accumulated, what's the rate, uh, do tree surveys, you know, measure how tall, how small the trees are, uh, and then based on, on, you know, different equations, we determine based on the height and, and the, what we call the diameter of breast height for mangroves, uh, which is, uh, Kind of if you want the, the size of the the trunk and we we determine based on equations that have been uh set up you know by by, by scientists previously and then we determine how much biomass is stored in those trees how much how much carbon is stored in the soil that's uh you know beneath those trees and then we can you know from those measurements we can project make a projection of how much protecting or restoring a certain number of hectares would reduce GHG emission. It sounds like there are a lot of moving parts to the carbon projects. So I'm wondering, yes. what does a normal day look like for you? It's, we are all working remotely at the moment. And then when we have to work on, you know, do field work for projects, we travel. So what what happens is that most of us and we are in different time zones again there's part of us that uh just like me that are in the western indian ocean and uh, a lot of my colleagues are in the americas both north and south america you know when working from home you kind of have to find a way to set up a routine it's not like you get in your car and you commute to work something like that so i usually set up my routine uh you know that's part a little bit of reading just to get into my day. Uh, sometimes I do a little bit of yoga, a little bit of mindfulness, and then I get into my work. And then as soon as I start my work, it would be um, resp uh, responding to a few emails, usually not more. I don't spend more than 45 minutes responding to emails so I can you know, focus my, uh, my attention and my brain power on tasks that require more, more of it. So I would do a lot of um, the remote sensing work and uh, coding that would be 
used for those projects, for example, to determine the extent of um, a certain government habitat, mostly mangroves. So I would do remote sensing work, um, and then it would be looking at the methodologies, reading, you know, what are the parts, what does the methodology say, and partly some some of uh, of this would be brainstorming with colleagues based on what I did and the work I did and what's the next steps. We also have weekly meetings with the staff where we discuss upcoming projects, upcoming field works, upcoming, you know, travel. And we do other things would be, you know, doing a lot of data analysis. I guess that that would be a lot of what I do is a lot of data analysis uh, and report, like writing those reports. Uh, like I said, there are different different moving parts in the process of getting issues um our credits issues so once you have the, the the project uh description submitted then you also get some feedback after from uh you know reviewers that review similar to what they do for uh, scientific papers and then we have to work on the responses to those reviews and then back redo if some things weren't uh, clear enough work on those so we a lot of what we do until we have to for example on field work we then we have to collect the sample uh, collect samples but we also train people on the field in the local community of those countries how to collect those samples so they are involved as much as possible wow so it sounds like you're wearing a ton of different hats in this job and i guess i'm curious is this more similar or, or is it completely different to a lot of the things that you did during grad school while getting your doctorate? To me, it was, I feel like it was definitely the next step. It's complementary uh, to the work I had been doing during my uh, doctorate. So I feel, I feel like it's taking what I learned through my doctorate and taking it, you know, to a whole new level where it's actually serving a bigger purpose where it's actually, you know, having real-time application. What I'm doing is actually having real-time application where it's being used to uh, in common projects that are actually involved in communities where they are benefiting from it. So I think it was the logic, for me, it was the logical next step of how I could take the science, the knowledge and the expertise of, you know, technical and scientific expertise I acquired during my doctorate and use it now in those like real life applications of, you know, actually having an impact is not only having an impact uh, in terms of being a nature-based climate solution, but it's also helping the communities in some way, like the local communities of those developing countries. Yeah, that's awesome. And I don't know, it must feel really good to kind of see the changes happening in real time, like you said, on a day-to-day -day basis or over the course of a couple months. And I know in grad school, a lot of the times we can feel really removed from that. So do you feel a sense of gratification more now than you did before? I definitely will say that sometimes, like you said, we when we are um, in academia, we, we tend to be a little disconnected from what, what's happening I guess in the real world because we're, we tend to be focused so much on research itself. Uh, but then when you get out of it and you see how research can can actually be applied in real time, like to and be be much more helpful in in such a way, 
And to me, I think that's the most fulfilling part of what I am doing is that I can actually see the impact of the work that I am doing as part of Sylvestrum and how it's where, where those carbon projects are actually happening is that the credit generated isn't just helping in fighting climate change, but it's helping in provide, you know, a better quality of life for them. Which honestly is really amazing to find a way for, like you said, both these nature-based solutions and community involvement in order to provide a better quality of life for, for the people in other countries. I'm kind of wondering a little bit more about you. So I've heard about you know, something that's really rewarding for you, but I'm also wondering what are some obstacles that you faced throughout your career as a scientist? I think I, I will say the biggest obstacle that I faced while pursuing, I guess, during my graduate career was actually be able to get funding to, to continue research. And, you know, you there's a lot of um, grant writing that's involved so that you can uh, get funding to, to pursue your research. For me, that was the biggest challenge at some point. Um, it was only, you know, I was trying my best. And at some point, I remember I, I was applying to so many grants and it just, nothing was coming through. And then um, I applied to what what is called the Orise Fellowship, which is which was definitely something that was a, a life savior, but also you know what allowed me to uh, pursue my my doctorate. So the Orise Fellowship is um, is from the Oak Ridge Associated University. So they give these fellowships to. Um, early career scientists that are still in graduate school or who have finished graduate school. And you can work with, uh, for example, a federal, um, with the federal government. And I was assigned to the EPA in the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. So I was working uh, as an ORISE fellow there as part of the, I would say, Aquatic Remote Sensing Lab group. And that's what kind of that's where my 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 doctorate research really took off is when I started working there. And the thing is, I could I was able to continue pursuing my doctorate and continue research as an ORIS fellow that was actually that was actually part of my doctorate. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing opportunity that you've had, and also an incredible resource. So we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. So kind of along those same lines. What's something that you wish you had known before going into research or graduate school in general? You can prepare as much as you want, but you know, sometimes things just come up that you have to, to be flexible, um, I guess, be flexible about and uh, just decide on the spot, okay, what, what I need to do. It's like you can prepare as much as you want, but some things, they're just they just come to you un unannounced. One thing I will say is that, again, like I said, I, going into graduate school, I think I was a little bit unprepared to how the system worked because, you know, I did not, I did my bachelor's in Mauritius. And then when I went to do my master's, a Fulbright scholarship, and then I stayed for my PhD. But they, they don't really prepare you to the fact that you will have to pretty much prove yourself so that you can get the money to do your research, you know? And I think another thing is that 
work-life balance and being a graduate student sometimes you tend to overlook that and they don't really tell you about it so i i feel like you this it is something that you have to learn to manage on your own as well as time management because you're you're juggling through a lot of things for example when i was in graduate school i was teaching and i had to grade and at the same time take my classes at the same time do my research so it is a lot that you have on your plate and you really need to know how to manage your time so that you can, because it can become overwhelming pretty fast and you have to know how to manage all of that all at once so that you ensure that you are successful moving forward. Wonderful advice. I totally agree. And honestly, I think a lot of the transparency that's surrounding grad school needs to come from academic institutions as well, because it varies across, you know, within countries and across countries. So I think it's something that definitely yeah. needs to be addressed. Yeah. <laughs> it does, yeah. And it also, you know, depends on, I guess, the, the academic, the scientists or, you know, the faculty that you're working with. I was lucky enough to have really supporting advisors, both at the EPA and at NC State, and they really set a good example for me of what it was to be uh, a successful scientist that had a good work-life balance, but also, you know, still doing really good, great work, great research, teaching at the same time, and, you know, have all of this happening. So I think this did definitely help set a good example when you have good advisors. For sure, it definitely makes a world of difference. So as we wrap up, I'm just curious, what's something that you're excited about for the future? Well, I think, you know, the future is not just all gloom and doom. I think there's really hope in especially, you know, not just the work that I am doing, which is, um, you know, directly related to climate mitigation, but I think in general, I'm really excited because I think that the generation that's coming is a little more aware, for example, when I compare like the gener generation from what my parents, where my parents came from and, and me and the generation that's coming after me, I think we're a little bit more aware of our surroundings in general and what, what are the, the challenges that we're facing. And I think I'm really excited to see what, what we can do together. I totally agree. It is a lot to hear about the doom and gloom all the time, but I think it's really wonderful to be optimistic and think about the future that we can achieve together. Yes, yes. I think, you know, just a little bit from any, everyone can have a big impact. So I'm really, I'm very hopeful about the future. So is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Any other parting words of wisdom? I think the last thing that I would say is, you know, always stay curious you know there's so much to learn from and, and anything even if you're not in science you know you can just be anything can spark your interest just walking outside and seeing something but just always stay curious so that you know never stop learning and never stop exploring what's out there there's an infinite amount of infinite amount of wonders that await outside Oh, I love that. And I totally agree. Again, it definitely keeps life interesting. And I think that's also something that connects us all together as well. Exactly. So always stay curious. 
Well, thank you so much for being here on the show. It was wonderful talking to you and wishing you the best in the future. Thank you so much, Ashley, for having me. And it was great. And I hope the, listener will, the listeners will really enjoy um, our conversations. The listeners can feel free to reach out to me as well. Great. Thanks so much. Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. Thank you.